To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? I got a brand new podcast for you. Um, so this one's a great one. Uh, this is the reason I love doing podcasts. Um, I've been watching Mike Eastman since I was a kid. I've been getting his magazine. Um, I really like him. I've had a couple chances to hang out with him, but Ike set this up. So I ran over to the office and then Ike brought me over to his house able to sit down in his living room and able to sit down with him, with Ike, with Dan Picard. And this is the best podcast I've ever done with Mike. Um, just a fascinating conversation. Mike's such a fascinating guy. Uh, the Eastman's just has such rich, rich history. And, you know, Mike Eastman's book, and we talk about it in the podcast, but Hunting High Country Mule Deer, um, that, that book changed my life. And so to be able to sit down with a guy that you really respect and uh, have an in-depth, authentic conversation, man, that's why I like doing the podcast. Um, so Ike set this one up. Ike and Dan sat in on the podcast, and it's just sitting down in Mike's house where he's comfortable, and uh, he's got his mounts on the wall. I'm able to look at those, just some giant mule deer and some some African game. And my goal for this podcast was, was just to have an authentic conversation, so I really wanted to talk what Mike was passionate about. And so I just kind of open up the conversation. We start talking about photography. We talk about hunting uh, African game species and dangerous close calls. And then we kind of transition into the good old days of hunting mule deer. Not that right now isn't the good old days. I truly believe right now is the new good old days of hunting. But um, to talk to Mike and to be the first guy doing it, I mean, we, I don't know, we talked about uh, building the raft across the river to kill these giant bucks. We talked about Ike was almost a, a never born, um, like because uh, Mike about died and froze to death on this mule deer hunt, and so he talks about that one and tells the story of cramping up. And man, it's just a it's an awesome podcast. So enough talking about it. We just need to get into it, but it's a great one. Uh, I want to thank our sponsor for today's show. Um, I want to thank Evolution Outdoors. So they're a new sponsor to Eastman's Elevated. Um, they build, like, they just build a really functional aerodynamic design on their broadheads, and I am a firm believer in them. I used them all season, um, harvested a couple different bulls with them, muley buck. See, I don't think I had them when I harvested my antelope. I'm, I'm not sure on that one, but, um, man, have those broadheads been good to me. Uh, I just like... Um, and I really like the guy behind him, too. So uh, Dale Perry is behind him, and he's just a good guy. I've really enjoyed getting to know him. But they, uh, Dale Perry, he did the design for um, the old Gravedigger broadheads, and I used those for years. So I had a lot of confidence in its design, but what he came up with... I really like his fixed blade. It's a four-blade design. It cuts uh, uh, three-quarters one way and an inch the other way. A great penetrating broadhead. I've got all pass-throughs on elk with these, and that's saying something. Since my draw length is 26 and a half inches, you know, 
Um, so, so I've been really impressed with the penetration, the damage it does. It's sharp in both sides. So you get it into an animal and he takes off running. It's cut in both ways. So I'm super impressed with those. Uh, I also really like his hybrid. His hybrid has a three quarter, uh, fixed blade on the front and then an inch and a half expandable out the back. And uh, those things are just devastating broadheads. They fly really well. So uh, I'm really impressed. I really like the designs of these. Um, we were going to do a, a mid-read for this podcast, but I just didn't want to break up this conversation with Mike Eastman as it's such a great one. And uh, I really appreciate uh, Dale Perry, Evolution Outdoors. I appreciate his broadheads. So if you're in the market to try some new heads, um, make sure to check them out, guys. And uh, thanks to those guys. Over there at Eastman's... Um, what a great company and you know I'm able to be part of. Those guys invited me down for the Christmas party. We recorded a couple podcasts. We did this one with Mike Eastman and then the 200th episode, which is just a great one. I'm so excited to release that to you guys. Um, so it'll be up for next week for our 200th episode. It's going to be a great one. <coughs> Excuse me. And then, um, yeah, I've got to do a, a New Year's one as well. Yeah, as we just get um, closer to ending hunting season, I know most guys are done. Um, I still might squeeze a couple more days in. Um, still got a muley tag left and then may go down to Arizona. <coughs> Gosh, I'm dying on the end of this intro. I can't lose this intro. I've got it all recorded now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got a, a few more days hunting. I think I'm going to sneak out right after Christmas. That'll be my Christmas present to me. Uh, go hunt the deep snow in the mountains for just a few more days. It's been really trying. I've got three trips, seven days in so far. I've had some good days. I had just one epic day. Uh, and I've recorded a live podcast the whole time. It's just the last live co- podcast I put out, I failed. And uh, I'd like to have one with some success on it. So I'm trying hard to be successful. I got a few days left. May run back over there and uh, give that a try for a couple days. And then got Arizona coming up. I think I'm going to solid up my plans. I think my buddy Dan is going to head down. Um, so really looking forward to that. Uh, I want to chase some coups. I love chasing those things. They're just action. I also want to mix in a little desert mule deer hunting or a little mule deer hunting up North. So, um, man, it's just, a it's been an, an awesome season so far and kind of back to work and back to the podcast and, uh, writing and keeping everything rolling here and super excited about that. But, oh, so I, I want to record a, a new year's episode. I just, after I finish every season, I just get renewed vigor and, and motivation and I just want to become better. And, uh, so I got a, a lot of goals I've been thinking about, a lot of things I want to work on. And, and, uh, you know, I just share that with you guys and, and, uh, we can all get better together and, and, uh, sharing our successes for 2000. 2020. So super pumped about that. So I'll be doing a solo or two. I know it's been a while. I'll get a, one of those out and uh, keep getting this good content out to you guys. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's been such a great year and um, these are a great couple podcasts to close on. So let's get right into this. Um, this is Ike Eastman. Oh, I did see 
let's see. I'm trying to remember when I record things and what I've told you guys, but uh, we've got a great Beyond the Grid that just came out. It's uh, Guy's Lion Hunt uh, down in Colorado, and it's some action. I guess uh, Dan about got charged out of that that thing with the camera, had to get out of the way pretty quick. So the guys were talking about it uh, as I was down there, and then um, we talk about it in the 200th episode a little bit. But uh, yeah, if you guys get some free time around Christmas, make sure to check out that Beyond the Grid. And then I just saw my elk edit is just done. Lindsay did an amazing job on it. What a story that thing told. I am so proud of that. It, it's taken years to be able to, to uh, uh, you know, tell the story and, and really like where the, the footage matches, you know, my memory of the hunt and really shows the action and the grind and um, man, what an amazing video. So that one is uh, really cool. It'll be coming up. Uh, be on the lookout for it on uh, Eastman's Outdoor Channel or on the Outdoor Channel on Eastman's Hunting TV. So set your DVR to that. I'll be looking forward for, for to that one coming out. With that, let's get right into this. So I got Mike Eastman, I got Ike Eastman, I got Dan Picard, and me, your host Brian Barney. Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. All right, I'm live here at Eastman's Elevated. I uh, got the pleasure of sitting down with Mike Eastman today, and we've also got Dan Picard and Ike Eastman here. So thanks a bunch, Mike, for taking the time. Oh, no problem. I'm on a fixed income and twiddling my thumbs if I'm not out taking pictures. Yeah, boy, you've been uh, some, taking some great photos lately, or at least posting some great photos. Sure are skilled behind that lens. Oh, thank you. I, I started when I was 14. My dad gave me a camera and growing up in Jackson Hole at 14 back in the 50s and 60s and he used to call me kid and said, kid go out and get me some stills for my lectures and stuff okay so I started doing it when I was 14 so well um and you've continued to learn and progress like you had to make the whole transition to to digital yeah and, you know we were pretty innovative with uh, basically with the uh, magazine, we started digital to plate before anybody else. In fact, they we were the guinea pig in the industry when they did that. So I started uh, doing um, our magazine on a Mac 512 when it first came out. And I actually did the first magazine. And uh, so we were pretty progressive and when digital came along, into the camera and I jumped right on it. I wasn't, I didn't wait because I knew it was what it was gonna do. There are some guys that were holdouts or that waited too long and inevitably they ended up switching over because it was a better system, but you were smart to make that transition like that early and just learn that, you know, learn that, that different way of shooting or the different way to get your photos. But it's so handy too, to be able to look at your photos in real time as you take them on the screen. Gosh, that makes for better photos. Uh, you used to have to wait and get them developed. It was a whole different process. Yeah, it sure was. And when it did come out, you're right. It, it, it was a, a game changer, particularly in our industry, where, you know, you do set up shots on a harvest animal with a, with a guy or a gal and, and being able to look at it right there and make sure that uh, the exposure's correct and and the uh, deer elk or whatever animals placed correctly where in the old days you just you took roll after roll 
and had to get them developed. And by then, if you didn't get the right money shot, I call it, uh, you were SOL'd. Well, it was done. It's so, so tough to get light and everything correct. You had no idea. You were just making a guess at it almost to where now you can look at it in real time as you're shooting. Well, what it does, too, is, you know, back then you used the, used, used the old saying, uh, and so everything, was, so everything was, was perfect. Now what you can do, you can fiddle with the light, and you can get some really, I call them artsy-type photos by using the light. In my progression in the outdoors taking photos, I, I don't just, I don't take a photo of just an animal standing there. A lot of people do that. I look... Now, nowadays, I look at the composition of, of the country around it, and I really look to find lighting, find shadows, find, you know, like I have one photo of a bull moose come up. It was 20 below that day, and a bull moose comes up to a cow moose. They stretch their noses out and touch, and it was just as the sun's come up, and I got the sun going across his back, and it lights up his, his eye and her eye, and the rest of them are in the shadows. That kind of stuff is what I kind of look for anymore. I'm not real interested in just taking pictures of an animal standing there. A lot of people sell their stuff that are like that. I have no really no interest, unless it's a 246 non-typical mule deer. No, that's a different story. <laughs> but <laughs> just a bull elk or a buck deer standing there. I, you know, I'm not interested. I see it in your photos. They're, they're so next level because of your composure and the action of the shot and the lighting like you're talking about. That's what makes a, a true photographer is that shooting. So how often are you out shooting now in the wintertime? Do you make a run out to the winter range once a week uh, or something like that? And well, I live. That's an, another story. I guess you got time for stories. We got all the time in the oh. world. When I got done 16 years ago, I was burnt out. I mean, I, was, uh, I just was tired of talking to hunters. Not that it, it was a bad thing. I just was burned out. So my wife and I, and she's pretty ranchy, okay? We're 50 years together in February. And um, so I found a place, in the mo one of the most isolated places in the lower 48. Uh, it's between the Beartooth in Abjorki Wilderness, and uh, the wilderness, designated wilderness, was only, at this particular place, was only uh, like 300 yards. And so I built a cabin up there, and I built it with one one bedroom, so I didn't have any company show up. Yeah, that worked out well for during <laughs> Christmas. Yeah, yeah, they all tried to stuff in there. I did have a loft that they all can lay their bedrolls out, but... And it looked like and, the after party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like 70 miles from the nearest grocery store, which would be Cody, Wyoming. You got to go over a 10,000 foot pass and, and keep going. And, and you know, it, it's extremely isolated up a creek drainage. And so I lived up there where kind of I was a recluse, basically. You know, I had a few friends up there, old timers, that after you're, you're not, they don't, they don't get to like you or accept you unless you live at least seven winters up there. And, you know, some winters we get 256 inches of snow. And so the winters are kind of long, but I grew up in that kind of country over in the western side of the state. So it wasn't no big deal to me. But anyway, so we're living up there, and I would go out almost every day unless it was snowing so hard you couldn't see or I had to plow or something. Every day for 16 years, I'd go out, and around that area, I was only, 
uh, 40 minutes from Lamar Valley in Yellowstone from there. But around my house would be bighorn sheep, uh, mule deer, elk, uh, black bear, grizzly bears, and them stinking wolves. And so I had all that to to take photos of. And then about after about the fifth year, I started doing landscapes. And I liked actually doing landscapes with having a, uh, an animal, a wild animal in there or some, you know, and that's hard to do, to do that kind of a photo. I've done uh, several of them. A couple of them I've waited, I know four of them I waited uh, over 10 years before the right lighting, the right snow, and the right animal got within the mountains, peaks and stuff. So a long question, answer to a short question. There you go. That's, oh, that's perfect. That's um, the definition of patience right there. Yeah, that's what those shots look like. They look like a one in 10 year shot when I see them. Every photo I come across of yours, it's just like, wow, you know, how did he capture that? Or And like you say, it was just waiting, having that, that photo framed in your mind and waiting yeah. for the, the perfect lighting and the animal right there and then taking the shot. Yeah, just to give you an example, I, I have I have a flat that's a sagebrush flat out there below my house, and a, and above the sagebrush flat is a Pilot and Index Peak, and Pilot Peak looks like the Grand Teton, but littler. It's about two thousand feet shorter, but it looks just like it. But it's really picturesque. And one day I had, and it was in the spring, I had these elk, and they're right out in that flat. And oh man, I I took pictures and I. You can go home and throw them in my computer because you don't really know what it looks like until you do that. Some people say, oh, yeah, I can look at mine. And t nah, because your, your little screen is a JPEG, it's, and you're shooting in RAW, and I don't want to get into all that. But you really, to see if you really got the money shut, you have to go and throw it in your computer. And So I went home, I, threw, I said, I got, I got this, I looked, and ah, there was no contrast. The, the elk blended right in with the sagebrush, and... The you know and, and there were and, and and the peak was sitting there and it was just blue sky above it and I was ah oh, crumb I said oh okay what I need here is I need snow on the ground right after a storm and so one day about two or three years later I'm sitting there in my house up in my my office it was up upstairs and and I look outside I've been snowing I look outside and it's breaking up I said well you know I think I'll go down there and see if there's any elk. So I went down there, and lo and behold, I drove, and I looked out there in that sagebrush flat, and there was 20 or 30 head of elk standing out there in that freshly snow, which covered the sagebrush, looked up. The sky was blue, but the clouds were just partying with the pilot, just fresh snow on it there. And the sun was just coming up and and went across the, the elk, and so I, I got that shot. And it's one of my favorites. So, oh, yeah, how that's cool. that, that. You know, that's how you you work in your mind. And I I have several right now in my head. I'm waiting till I can. F and so I go and check every day. Not every day, but I'll check when I know the circumstances are right. Uh, anyway, man. Yeah, that's next level photography, and it's that's wild that the first time you caught those elk on the sage flat, that picture didn't turn out. Like you say, there was no contrast, they didn't stick out, but that planted the seed, right? And then you started thinking about it and then caught them in that sage flat in the right conditions and got the picture you were looking for. But like you say, that can be years in the working. 
Yeah, I did. I did that one time with a with a moose. I I wanted the moose with pilot in the background and the river. And and see, you got to shoot that uh, like with uh, a long lens, so that so the basically pilot looks like it's right there. You know. Yep, and I know what you're saying. Depth of field of the lens and. And so it's hard to work those moose up there because those, those wolves have, have made them very aggressive and spooky. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't walk up on one like you used to in the old days. Well, in the old days, you could walk up on one. They just stand there and look at you. Now, they don't do that no more. But I had this cow with a calf, and she'd been coming in uh, several years, and I'd been kind of filming her and stuff, and she got used to me. And she come in, it's really funny. She would come in and the river, just visualize the river there, and there was a side channel, and the side channel had green algae in it. And she'd come in and eat that algae for about an hour and a half and then leave with her little, I'll call him Toto, that's Swahili for the little one, with her calf. And um, so I watched her the first time she'd come in, and then she left at 9. And so I I started going back because... She just kept doing that, and I kept, I got, one day I got all situated right when she was there, and so I got that photo. I got her and the calf standing there in the water looking up, and, and, it, and Pilot was in the background, and it was blue sky, so it stuck out like a sore thumb, and it had snow on it. When they don't have snow on them, they don't look as well, and I got several really nice photos. But let me back up a little bit. The first time she was there, I got out and got on my camera, and I walked in there, snuck up, and I, and I took pictures, and I said, oh, this is great. I got, I got home and looked, and the pilot was covered with clouds. It just snowed, and there's clouds. Oh, shoot. Okay, so I had to wait two or three days, and then it got clear, and so I went down there, and here she is again down there eating that algae. Uh, and about 9 o'clock, she gets up and leaves. Anyways, was that in the winter or is that is that that was the spring. spring? So spring. your springs, it's snowing on top of the peak and raining down there. Yeah, it was it was spring. Oh, I'd say April maybe. There was no snow in there, but there was snow up on the mountain, and um, she still had. It, it was she had in winding. He was a year old and with her, but she, uh, did he? Did she ever get aggressive? Uh, not with me. I I shot her. I used my fi my. Uh, 5D Mark IV camera, mm-hmm. which is a full sensor camera, mm-hmm. and I shot it with a 105 millimeter lens, mm. and I cranked it to 105, and that was enough depth of field to bring in the mountain, and so I had to get pretty close. I I didn't get as close as I well I got as close as I thought I could get without spooking her and doing anything, and she'd eat and then kind of look at me and go back, but I knew. She, she didn't care about me. Now, if that was a bull, he probably would have run off. Yeah. You know, but she she had seen me many times playing around in that river bottom, and she knew I wasn't a wolf And in any way. It's got to be fun. Like, hunting those photos, it, it's almost tougher than hunting the animals themselves. And it's it's so fun when I get that that million dollar shot as I call it or that shot that I I'm so proud of where you say you've got the lighting and the composure in fact Tuesday I was coming home and I I saw my million dollar shot I was driving through uh, uh coming back to Montana I was hunting Idaho there and I was driving back and as I as I drove through um kind of Island Park where they get two feet of snow or two two and a half feet of snow and there's snow 
all over the trees. And then I drove across this little bridge and in that creek, there was a moose in the middle of that creek with the fog rising and the whole deal. And it was a bull standing there in that middle of that creek. So I slammed all my brakes and I turned around and I got in there and got my camera. I always had my camera with me and went out on the walking bridge of that, that, uh, on that bridge and then that moose was just walking into the brush right as I got mm. out there I got zero shots of him but <laughs> it's like you say like capturing those animals through photographs it it's 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 dang near tougher than trying to harvest them with a, a rifle or a bow oh, you yeah. know you're just looking for perfect conditions well everything has to be good and you know I've won several international photography contests and those people everything has to be perfect for them because they get so many get like the National Geographic one gets over 200,000 entries. And so, you know, they're thumbing through them and looking for the right, just the perfect one and stuff. And I, I, I did a good one on a grizzly bear. We got grizzlies, in fact, around my house. If you went outside and you went around the corner, you always look around the corner and make sure a grizzly wasn't right there eating grass or something, because they were all around our house all the time. They wouldn't go in until, uh, they got done hunting. Would it be the end of Mo maybe the end of November? They'd go in, and then the earliest I saw them, I saw them come out fifteenth uh, of March. So wow. they don't stay in very long. Up north, up in Northwest Territory, uh, the boars don't even hibernate. So a grizzly bear isn't a true hibernator anyway. He isn't like a black bear. So. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah, I know they always come out earlier than black bears. I always see their tracks and see them like that March or April dates that you're talking about, but they're not a true hibernator. Not what they, they got a word for it, the, the biologists do, but they're, uh, they're not a true hibernator like a, a, a black bear is. <laughs> okay, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, like I said, up in the Northwest Territory, they're, the boars are out all year round. <laughs> That's crazy. They're out year round. Um, and I think it's my own personal opinion. I'm not a biologist, but I just hang around for the last 70 years. I, I think it has to do with food source. Up there, they can the caribou and stuff are around, and they can eat them all winter. Okay. Wolf kills and stuff. And if they don't have food source, then I think they go in and hang out in a hole mm -hmm. waiting for, you know, anyway. Man, and those grizzly bears, they seem to, their populations keep growing, and they just seems to be more and more run-ins with humans, but um, you had to have some close encounters back in the day with grizzly <laughs> bears and moose, and those moose, I know a lot of guys are more scared of moose than they are grizzly bears. Those, uh, uh, like, like Ike was saying, those cows protecting those calves, um, they stand so tall, I would hate to get stomped out by one of those things, and and they don't seem like they're as scared as humans of as like a deer or an elk. You know, they're more apt to go on the fight. Yeah, most of the time, I, my experiences is they all all of them, the bulls and the cows get real cranky in the winter. I call it cranky, and that's when I I'm really careful because that's when they'll just yeah they'll do that. But grizzly bears, oh yeah, I've I've never been, like Dan, been charged to where I had to bang one, but I've come close, had couple, two false charge me, but, um, oh, I like to tell a story, this is really funny, my wife's gonna 
kill me for telling this story. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're looking for. Well, she doesn't listen to your podcast, and she's not here, so I can tell. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, we got grizzlies, and they walk all over, up and down our place all the time. And, and you have good grizzlies and bad grizzlies. And usually the bad grizzlies are put up there from someplace else. There have been their problem grizzlies, and the game fish has to do that three times before they can, they call, euthanize them. And so one year, to give you an example, up by my house, they put in, either took out or put in 56 grizzlies in one year. So they're always shuffling these suckers around. So first thing you do when you look at a grizzly is see if he's got an ear tag in in his ear. You know, that's the first thing you look. But anyway, I get up at five. Okay, I'm in, we're up there at the cabin and, and uh, I have a garage that's right next to the house. It isn't part of the house because my house is logged. And then I built the garage later. But on the garage, I have two great big spotlights, and they're, they got motion sensors on them. So I do that. So when they go off, I know either it's a fox, a wolf, or a grizzly bear, you know. It's kind of like my early warning system at night. And so it was about 2 in the morning, and I, for some reason I woke up and just visualized I'm in bed, and behind my head is the window that faces out, outside, and the garage is to the side of that window, and I'm, it's faced there. And then facing me against the wall in the bedroom was a big mirror um, my wife had. And for some reason, I woke up and I looked, and I see that the mirror is great big shining light. And the first thing I thought was, oh, who? <laughs> I, I'm up here because I want to be a recluse, okay? What a-hole is parked at this time of night in the middle of my driveway? I throw the covers off, and as I spin around to get out, the light goes off in my head. I go, oh, sh- well, OS, it's not a car. It must be a grizzly. And so I got up and I went out and I went into I went to the living room and, and our door has a great big kind of a circular glass and I peeked out and sure as hell sitting on his rump is the biggest grizzly I've ever seen in the lower 48. He was he was so big his jowls were sagging and he had a big old cut on his hump or on his butt. I, so I call him Garbutt. Kids love that. <laughs> and he's sitting there with a light on him. And so I opened the door and yelled at him. He looked at me, and he took and he wandered up the road and went over to the neighbor's place and sat for a while. But I, I called Bertie, and she got to look at him. Oh, my, that's big. Yeah, that's big. And so he shut everything up went back to sleep. And so I get up at 530, and as I get up, it's just getting light. But I could see again, the light goes, I could see the light. I go, oh, that sucker, he's back again. Oh, I'll fix him. And so I get up and I go to look out the door, window, and the door, and I look and I peek around and I look at the garage entry, you know, the gravel, no grizzly. Because see, that light will stay on a long time. I said, well, maybe he, he came through and it turned on and he's gone now. And I start looking around and then I peeked way around to underneath the bedroom window, and this is in the spring, and I got grass there, and here is a grizzly bear, a different one, eating grass right underneath my window. I go, 
I'll be darn. Oh, I'm going to take some pictures. This is going to be cool on Facebook. I'll take pictures of grizzly bear in my house. And I, I go get in, and my wife wakes up. And she says, what's going on? I says, there's a grizzly bear right there under the window, and he's feeding. I'm going to get some pictures of him. And she says, oh, and she goes back to the bedroom. And we have curtains like this, you know, to keep the coal out. And <laughs> she ra- and, and my wife's just sitting there, and her hair's all like this, you know, just out of bed. <laughs> hair straight now up I know in why the she air, hates you know? story. <laughs> <laughs> she raises the window, the, the shade up. He probably heard the shade. And he's, he's big enough a bear that she raised it up, and he turned, and he is facing her. <laughs> glass <laughs> oh. I hear this big yell out in the bedroom, and I'm trying to get ready to take pictures. And I look, and that bear spun around. And took off, and about 12 feet away from uh, uh, the window there outside, we have one of those frost-free spigots, you know. Mm-hmm. That sucker hit that spigot. <laughs> and, and if you ever have one, they're cast iron. He broke, he broke the spigot handle off, and I still have it as a souvenir, and he bent it. When he broke it, you imagine how hard you bent a cast iron. He kind of bent it. <laughs> And took off running, but my wife, she yelling and screaming. <laughs> <laughs> She's literally been nose to nose with a grizzly yeah, bear. Yeah, yeah, but right there. And he was big enough that he he stood to where, you know, his head was right there in the window. He didn't have to stand up on pause or anything. He just looked right at her. <laughs> and he said, oh, my God, what is this thing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he put her hair and off he takes. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> well, I had hundreds of stories like, you know, like that. Those uh, bears, they, <laughs> they're, sometimes you're s- sitting there and watching them go by the window, you know. Here they come. They like grizzly bears. Uh, they're not black bears. A lot of times, well, most of the time, they find a way around openings and stuff. They don't like to do that. Grizzlies don't care. The grizzlies up to my place, they like the road. They run. They walk right down the road. I mean, and there's where they do their thing too. I swear they come two miles, knowing that road's there, come two miles to do a dump on that road. I swear that's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, Scarbutt was actually a pretty good bear. He never yeah, got into no. anything. No, and, and my neighbor up, the, he went up to my neighbor's house, and it was in the morning, and she said that uh, I did have two neighbors living up there around me a bit, but <clears throat> it's about a mile up above my house. She said they had a buck buck rail fence, you know, and that sucker flat-footed jumped that buck rail fence, went right up to it, and just went bing. Wow. Yeah. They're very agile, I mean, and, can, and they can run like, uh, they can put the distance real quick. I've watched that happen, too. Uh, if you think you can outrun one, you might have one's coming after you, either you're going to bear spray him or try to defend yourself or just lay on the ground and roll over because you're not going to outrun him. Mm-mm. Never, mm. ever outrun him. They come so quick. 35 yes. miles an hour, they close distance at the snap of a finger and they'd be on you. Well, and a lot of guys can't even get a shot off or their right. pepper spray out yeah. just because it happens so quick. And I think like a... Like an NFL linebacker. Like, I would hate to be hit by an NFL linebacker. I mean, those guys weigh 220, 250. I mean, the the absolute specimen of the human species, and they hit you at full speed. Well, now think a bear weighs two or three times that and can run twice as fast and is leading with tooth and claws. That thing's going to wreck you when he gets to you. Mm-hmm. I always think about that. Those things are so quick. I had one uh, just last year. I, I come down off the hill and uh, he was coming up 
And I had my camera, and I said, oh, I'll, I'll step over here and, and get some photos of him. And he either saw me or, or smelt me, and he stopped. He looked at me, turned, and he started running, and he ran through a, a creek bottom, through deadfalls, up through a rock slide. I mean, I, I was amazed how f quick he could get and get up there and go through all those different obstacles so quick it was just unbelievable i've seen that too mike where it'd take us a half a day or a whole day to make it where they go in just a matter of minutes the way they close country or roll through country yeah. like you're saying just an amazing animal how fast does it take them to get through a chicken coop dan <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah they can make a mess out of that that's for sure dan's the only guy i know that have uh that has uh had to defend himself and came out without a scar yeah that was a long time ago kind of forget about that but well how about that black bear yeah, yeah, that was yeah i mean i don't want yeah. to go hunting with you you, <laughs> you get too close to them i don't know what your problem us bow hunters right <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> you had the same thing that's didn't that's you? the funny thing is dan and i were both charged this season so we got to go on the podcast and then tell our story here this summer when we caught up but yeah that was a close call you had on that black bear yeah you don't yeah. have much time to think no. You had one shot. I had 11, but... <laughs> <laughs> Did you use them all? <laughs> I grazed him once and hit him twice. <laughs> Out of 11 shots? I threw a lot of lead his way. Oh, my gosh. I, you know, I forget to aim. My shooting process, I'd hit him with my bow, and he I just had to defend my position. He was coming downhill and at me. But, yeah, I mean, I started shooting, and I hadn't looked at my sights once. There was dirt flying up and dirt flying. I finally got a couple of shots in. But it made me realize you were I too pocket him oh, sideways <laughs> yeah it got a little western for sure but i i need a better shooting process with my pistol i learned that well that just goes to show you how difficult it really is mm -hmm. like guys think that they're going to shoot a charging bear they have their 44 or whatever but it's so hard to keep your composure if unless you go through the process hundreds of times which mm -hmm. i've done since i had that grizzly bear encounter when i was a kid so you think about that stuff all the time mm -hmm. And this year, it was just kind of like what I thought. In reality, you have one chance to kill that bear and, and to stop him if he's decided to come your way. And that's at point blank with a pistol, with a three-inch pistol. Because when they're out there 30, 40 yards and all that's going on, like you say, you forget to aim. So your accuracy is completely out the window. And so that's, that's what it came down to. I was like, well, I'll just wait him out. And, and this isn't a matter of a couple seconds. But the bear I shot at, he, I wounded him with my bow and got back on him. And I shot him once as he, he spun around, locked on me, and came around. I don't know if I hit him or not. And then he had about 20 yards to come, and I didn't even try anything. I was like, I'm going to be ready for him. And what stuck out in my mind is as he was coming at me, his forehead was kind of down, like his head was down as he was coming. And I was able just to sight his forehead as he was coming down. And when he got up to about eight feet, boom. It's just a point and shoot, sight his forehead the whole time, step out of the way, somersaulted, died on my bow right there. But you had one shot. You, you weren't gonna get another one. You get one chance. And if you're off, you know, your kill zone is yeah. probably size of an orange. Yeah. And if you're off, I mean you're gonna get hit. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you know. I, I was lucky I had mine double lunged with an arrow coming at me, so I had a little bit more time. But, yeah, yeah it was not the best shooting display, that's for sure. Yeah, they, uh, they say that uh, very few grizzlies, I don't know about black bear, very few grizzlies are killed with pistols. They're just so yeah. inaccurate. Yep. And 
the trouble with a grizzly is, you know, charging grizzly, they, they don't duck their head. They put their head straight out. So then and then it even gets harder to try to their get heads, a kill. Yeah, their head's kills slanted. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I shot a, a charging black bear one time with my bow. And I always thought I'd shoot him in the chest, like you're saying, Mike, or you got that spot in the head that you're looking for. Well, as he charged in, he was so low to the ground. It was a big black bear, but I ended up running the arrow behind his head, down through the back of him, and hitting in the vitals that way, like down and into him really? as he was coming at me. Yep. Well, another one that I hit with an arrow and disappeared down below me, and then I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear any noises, so I know he stopped right there. So I knocked another arrow didn't have my pistol out didn't have my bear spray out and then he started to run and he was going to run up by me and he wasn't charging me he was just making a death run or whatever just Uh, trying to go die uh, but he was going to run by me where i could reach out my hands and touch him as he ran by so i huffed at him and as soon as i huffed he pinned his ears back and came right for me he's like oh you're the one that stung me came right at me and i barely got my bow back and loose that arrow and hit him right behind the head right into the lungs and then you know like you say toppled and made it another five yards before he died wow yep those things are gnarly well, Note if you to can. self, never go bear hunting with you two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you hunt. If you can, it's like in Africa, if you, if you could get down on your knees and before he charges, because that's the whole problem. You, you just said it right there. If you're standing up like that and you aim for what you think is his head, by the time that bullet gets, it's behind it's just but if you're geometry. if you're kneeling straight like so he coming straight at you, mm-hmm. that's what you do with a charging lion or a Cape Buffalo if you can. Really, a lot of guys don't, but if you really can, that so you're then you're shooting straight. Yep. You don't instead of you're not doing this. That you're makes not, a lot of sense. You're not Mike. standing up trying to shoot down, and by the time the bullet gets there, you miss the vital spots. If you're down at his level, the bullet's going. Horizontal, right towards him. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. That's wild. Yeah. That has to be fun hunting Africa, being able to stalk with a rifle through some of that stuff, and um, hunting some of those different species. Yeah. You, you, you like going to Africa, don't you, Mike? Oh, I've been. I spent. I go on kicks. You know, I'm a specialist. Mm-hmm. You know, if, there's two types of hunters. There's collectors, and there's specialists. And I'm a specialist. I don't. I don't have a lot of animals. I specialize and got really good at hunting and taking trophies of a particular species. So, so you specialized like in mule deer, and then you specialized oh, in Cape buffalo. Oh yeah, I got over there once. I was going over there once. I don't want everybody to, thinking I'm a specialist and you're a collector. Specialist meaning I'm better. It's no, just, no, it's a different a specialist. A different, yeah, oh, like I said, a specialist specializing gets really good at hunting one particular species and knows everything about it. Where a collector, he wants to hunt and take. All kinds of species. See, there, there's mm-hmm. two types of hunters mm-hmm. that way. I'm not saying one's better than the other, uh, but that's what I was. And I went over to Africa just to take one Cape buffalo and do like everybody else. And I got really kick a uh, hook on it. And so I had a friend who was a owned a had a area over there in Tanzania, northern Tanzania, Maasai steppes. And so I spent five summers over there and getting my ph and and filming and stuff and uh that was real uh western over there we we had firefights with poachers and wow. all kinds of stuff but i took my grandkids last summer and we went to uh, two of my grandkids and went to nibia and that's really if anybody wants to go 
where it's safe and has a lot of game. It's kind of like hunting Wyoming. It would be there. It's mm. it's really cool. In Nibia, fact, huh? It's Nibia, yeah. Okay. Birdie it's and I are going back. Yeah, it's extremely safe, and it, it's not it's not third world country like some of those yeah. countries. Like when I was in Zimbabwe, it's a, that's a mess. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. there's no having to having to take and and get get somebody taking and wanting you to give them a bribe and stuff. There's none of that there. It's like uh, there's it's a like lot of traveling. cattle ranches. They call them farms. I mean, we're talking 100, 100 and 150, 200,000 acres, and, and they got all this wildlife on it too. And and now they're realizing it's 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 they make more money if they did the wildlife than running cattle. So a lot of them are just changing over because they own the wildlife. In Nibia, the way it works is if there's wildlife on your on your property, you own it. The, government doesn't own it but the government controls it you got to buy a permit they don't have to they can shoot wherever they want for meat or whatever but uh, as a person like me from out of country i have to buy a permit which isn't bad but they own all all so the wildlife do the, do the trophy fees go to the government like in tanzania or do they go to the, the i landowner? think uh, a portion of it goes to the government you know and i mm. don't think it's a big portion but a portion of it does but uh, when we were there, my grandson he he killed <laughs> he killed three uh, oryxes, ginsbucks. Two uh, the rancher came to us and said, "I need some. I would like some meat. Can you guys kill me two ginsbucks?" And grandson said, "Yeah, yeah, no, sure, yeah." <laughs> so he he got out there and he we killed two. He killed two gims bucks, put them back in the truck, and took them to the rancher. I'll call them ranchers. They call them farmers. And he had a place where he put them up, and they butcher them, and they eat them. Uh, African game is so much better than, than ours. It's There's no gamey taste to it. It's really delicious. But anyway, uh, it's a great place. I highly recommend it. If you want to first try it, you can go up in northern Nibia and get into Cape Buffalo and all the dangerous species. Where I was was south of Winnehook, the capital, and that's basically all plains game. And there's there's maybe a leopard or two and some cheetahs, but but none of the. It's pretty. It's pretty economical too. I mean, it's oh, yeah. it's less than going caribou hunting. To well, you know, you start adding stuff up, kind of. But just to give you an example uh i'm going seven days hunting and then i'm going uh, five days filming and i think that just that thing is like 6600 bucks for me and my wife you know super and then you, economical in today's day and age yeah oh yeah i mean if you wanted to go to tanzania on <laughs> on a cape buffalo hunt you're looking at 30 grand you know mm. so mm-hmm. uh, nowadays it wasn't that way when we went oh over. when i back in the 90s when i was there yeah, we you could go in the nineties for eight to nine thousand. Mm-hmm. Wow. And take two buffalo. Mm-hmm. And uh lion hunt was twenty six thousand. And that would be you could shoot everything in a move there. You know, you'd add a license for I shouldn't mm-hmm. say that people would you could take a lot of 26 animals or mm-hmm. something. Well, that's um, part of the deal is you pay for an Alaskan trip or a sheep trip and you mm-hmm. spend that money. But in Alaska, you really get a pretty good bang for your buck. And the species are just beautiful. Like you have a few here in your home, Paula and Gimsbuck. And then 
God, those Cape Buffalo, that has to be so thrilling to hunt those. Just dangerous game, and you got to be conscientious of them charging. They're such a big animal. And then it seems like you kind of still hunt them through the – through the, at least that's how I imagine it. It's a lot of tracking and still hunting and thick brush and trees, and you got to get really close to them. And then you have to make such a precise shot to be able to put them down, or otherwise it, it's a it's a bad situation. Yeah, it's uh, when the bullet goes off, you sit there and go, I hope he makes a good shot, because if they don't, uh, you get a wounded buffalo. They, uh, they, they have the most adrenaline chemical <laughs> any animal and then they and what's the thing of them you know like you shoot a, a grizzly's kind of like that but you shoot any other hoofed animal in north america they go try to hide from you mm-hmm. that guy he might run but he's making a plan and there is many times i have come up on a wounded buffalo and he's went and circled around and he's waiting for me to come up or me and the hunter so he can hammer you i mean that's they, they'll do that man yeah. and they're such a big animal what do they weigh yeah. mike well it depends on where you go you know and zimbabwe had some good ones but they killed them all out and so they got got their herd from uh zambia i think and they're kind of little but the ones in northern Maasai, they were thinking about making their own subspecies there and i've had some guys i won't say who, who they are they've hunt over there say oh no they're not that big but uh, I know they go up uh, 2,000 pounds, mm-hmm. 1,800 pounds. I know that. The big ones in uh, North Maasai, they're huge. They're, wow. They're the biggest. And and out, the, out of that camp I hunted and filmed and guided, that last year I was there, we took 38 buffalo or 40 buffalo. Clients did. Every one of them was over 40 inches. Where if you go to anywhere else, including down in the slough, southern Tanzania, uh, uh, outfitter will get maybe one forty inch or a year, but every forty inches is like a we're over forty. Forty inches is like a one ninety mule deer. It's like a three three seventy bull. Yeah, elk. I mean, it, they're that's big. Well, every one of them went SCI record book. Every right. one of them was wow. over one hundred and ten. Yeah. How big wow. is this one you have on your wall here? Under measuring him, he's probably one hundred and twenty. God, he carries his mass so well. Uh, that's why I shot him. He's he's not. He's only yeah. forty inches, but. We call those kukuli uh, uh, bulls. Yeah, and they're um, buff uh, loaf loaf of bread <laughs> size. See how how he keeps a keeps it all the way down and and uh, at the the bottom where he curls up. You mm-hmm. you can't get both hand trying to get both hands around it. You can't. And those bulls are like that. See the way they score score a buffalo from tip up and over the head and down and around to the other tip. So if you've got a bull that goes goes way low, you're going to get more inches out of, out of the score. And mm-hmm. all those buffalo, all the three in here all come from there. They all go low. That one yeah. I had to kill. They called me up and not called me up. They come come over to, our, to the camp, and he'd, he'd kill two Maasai warriors. And so uh, wow. we had to go kill him. Wow, Jeez. that is wild. So their, their ears sit so low because yeah. of their horns. That's kind of a weird configuration. Well, and the, the, yeah, the ears are that pushes their ears down kind of that way. Okay. And uh, but yeah, he was he was mean. He was gonna. There's a funny thing. I he was in a bunch of corn and he left, and it was just starting to get sunrise. And I knew where a pan was, right close. And pan is a you guys call it a 
pond. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a pan, and they call them pans over there. And so mm -hmm. I went to the pan, and I come into it, and I come into it wrong. I came into it to where the pan, where I faced the pan, the sun was coming up in my eyes, which was, I don't know why I did that. I think I was, I don't know, I had a brain fart or something. But as I come in, a bunch of zebras run off. And I come up to the pan, and, and it's all muddy, you know. It isn't, like, nice like ours. It's just mud. And I look there, and I, I, I don't see anything, you know. I said, well. And then I hear this. And I look across there, and I see this. And that sucker had rolled in that mud, and so he's just black as a mud. It was just, you know, like he was camouflaged. And then when the zebras run, you know, he... He took a couple more, and he raised his head, and I see this big head come right out of the mud, like this, and I go, there he is, and mud coming down off his horns and his eyes, and he's just all, just completely mud, and looks at me, and he's on his knees, he gets up, and he goes around the pant, <clears throat> there's a trail, ah, okay, I get set up <laughs> to help these people will kill the sucker and he's out there about 50 yards maybe <laughs> and he's walking and he's not stopping he's he's walking kind of quartering away from me by then straight away from me quartering away and he's keeping an eye on me you know he's like and finally I go hey you and he spun around uh, broadside and was going to come. I could just see right there. He, he was like, okay, I'm going to take care of you right now. And so I shoot a 458 lot, and I had a 500-grain bullet, and he was using Barnes Copper. And I hit him right in the shoulder, and that 458 didn't topple him over. It, he rocked him, come back down, and off he went, and I shot him again up the up the rear, second shot, and he kept going. He goes in the brush. Oh, crumb. And I'm talking brush over your head. So then I had to go in there. It was just lucky that he was hurting. So I could hear him in there. And when you when they're hurt, they stomp their feet. I could hear him in there stomping his feet. I knew he was really head hard, and he was probably trying to die. He hadn't done the – they'll do a death moan, too, when mm -hmm. they die. But I – I had to put three more bullets. He, his adrenaline was so hot. I, I put three more 500-grain bullets in him before he finally Jeez. went plunk. Yeah. Yeah, wow. so much for that story. One of the wow. toughest animals to bring down, it seems like. That's just oh, yeah. wild. They hit him with oh. that kind of 500-grain bullet, two yeah. shots, and then have to shoot three more into him. Oh, yeah. By then, his adrenaline was running, and he just stood there, and he, he couldn't. He was all crippled up. He, he couldn't come at, at me, and I just had to just keep plowing him one after the other until he finally I wasn't going to wait for him to die I didn't and he finally toppled over that was about 60 feet from him I think but I was we were rocking up looking for him and I had two trackers in front of me this is funny you'll like this and these trackers they can see and hear like you can you can't believe I mean it's unbelievable and as we started into the brush I said well I, I better take it I took my safety off and I went click and those two guys they jumped about five feet in the air turn around and look at me because they've oh sh we're, we're, what was like, that like, well they knew i was taking the safety off like uh-oh something's coming yeah where is he? And i said 
<laughs> you look at me like, you asshole. <laughs> sorry, man. Sorry. I should have took it off. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it seems like in that country, too, like every place you hunt takes a different skill set. But in there, it seems like you got to be really good with your offhand shooting, your quick shooting, and have your head on a swivel as you're moving through that grass. Because even your first shot, you said you were only 50 yards away. That's close. Yeah. You know, and then you know, your final shots, 60 yards or 20 yards away to put them down with three shots. But you got to be good on that offhand shooting, don't you? Oh, uh, yeah. That's. Um um, and I decided not to be a PH. I, I, I'd gone through the three years, got to go three years of, um, apprenticeship. Only thing I uh, needed, I had every, all the thing, only thing I needed was to take an oral exam. And by then I got too old. I felt I was too old and couldn't, you know, I didn't, there's still older guys that still do it over. I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was, I was quick enough to do that. My buddy, he was 10 years younger than me. He was he was pretty good. He had, he had a 500. I've seen a I've seen a 500 throw one down, but the, and, and watching him get right back up. But uh, um, I, I that was he he's shooting a double. Um, the worst thing though is 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 um, a wounded leopard. They're pretty bad, mm. but you you don't use a gun on them. My buddy found that out. When he first was guiding, he used a sharp stick, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell yeah. me a little bit about the the cheetahs. They're so quick, right? And they blend yeah, well, in it's so good. Leopards. Or leopards, leopards. Sorry. Oh yeah, no, they're quick. You can't. He had his five hundred, and he couldn't swing on it quick enough, and it and it got on him. And mm. oh wow, tearing up and and his tracker hit hit the, hit him over the head, the uh, leopard over the head with the butt of a gun, mm. and that. That did that did it, but didn't it, he, wow. didn't he jump his, from one wow. guy to another guy? No, they'll do that. He didn't. He was by didn't himself. Oh, but didn't hit the that's uh, that's the only really only animal that will do that. He he literally. I was talking to a guy where they got he, one of those leopards got three of them, and, and see their claws are all because he they eat uh, rotten meat and stuff. Uh. It, within an hour and a half, you're going to get infection. You've got to go somewhere. you got to pump the penicillin in you and do stuff, or you'll just, in 36, 48 hours, you'll be so, uh, you'll be dying of, of blood poison. But, um, so he, he started, in a lot, and that's what guys do. When you get a wounded, wounded leopard, uh, you go in the bush with a shotgun. So... Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Instead of, and that's in getting back to bears, and they don't like to tell you this. They want you to always carry bear spray, which they do. But yeah, I got plenty of pictures, and I've been around them. And those game fish guys are fiddling with those grizzlies. They all, we all have a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Yep, I like um, a shotgun with slugs if I'm tracking a wounded bear. Back to bear not having to aim. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, you just swing and shoot, and a double lot buck, and you're gonna. And then what I used to do is I used to carry f- three double-aught buck, and the last two were 500-grain slug. That'll mm-hmm. do the job. <laughs> By the time I get to there, he's so close, I ain't going to miss if I get to shoot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know? But anyway, so much for Africa. You know, I, spent a, I got a lot of Africa stories. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of... so. American stories and North and I was going to say, so, you, so you're a specialist. Yeah. You specialize in something. In, I'm leading you here. I'm sorry. Mm. Um, 
what other species have you specialized in in North America? Well, in North America, of course, mule deer. I, I come from the culture of mule deer. My father, uh, he he loved mule deer, loved hunting mule deer, and all his buddies did. And I grew, grew up listening to stories. I took my first mule deer. We lived, I, I actually was born in the state of Washington up by the Canadian border. And we moved to Wyoming when I was 12. And I, I shot my first mule deer at the age of eight. I got pictures of it. And so I come from a you know, culture of that. And when we moved to Wyoming at 12, uh, of course, Jackson Hole had all the elk. And we did a lot of elk hunting, and I could call elk and d- devised a call. And, and there's a lot of stories about that, and it was okay. So I guess in a way I, was, I could say I, I specialized in elk, but I, I didn't really – like I told my lectures, me and my younger brother – we made a living taking elk hunters, but we love to mule deer hunt ourselves. See, so, so this section brought to you by Mule Deer Mike's Mule Deer Project is a short. This is going to be a short film coming out this spring. <laughs> oh, Shameless gosh. plug. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I guess they got they got old pictures of me and stuff. But uh, the other thing I I, I got really good at um, public land. This is all public land stuff. This isn't was hunting antelope. I've taken, and I did a book on it, and it, it, the book took me four years to do. I'm not a prolific writer. Now I got, I got my hands are all goofed up from Agent Orange, and I can't type. I got to go pick. But it took me four years to do the book. I'm pretty proud of it, as I am with the first one I did called Hunting High Country Mule Deer. That book, I always wanted to do a book. I didn't care if I only sold five copies to my relatives, you know. I just thought, okay, I want to do a book. And the only thing I really hunted was mule deer in the high country. I mean, I grew up right there, and I got stories about when I was younger, I used to backpack by myself. I couldn't find any other kid that wanted to do it. They were all out chasing girls in high school, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Not me. I was. um, So I did this book. And I had a, uh, my editor, who was my editor for 10 years, and he, he had the same background as me. He'd, he'd come from a ranching family in Thermopolis, and then he went to Jackson, and he did a lot of guiding and outfitting, and, and he knew Western stuff. You couldn't BS this guy. You know how some guys, you, can, you know they're BSers, and other guys you can look at and know that been there, done that. And I'm talking wilderness, and I'm not talking hunting out of a pickup. I'm talking, you know, going back 20 miles with pack horses to your camp and setting your camp up and, and spending all, all fall back there and bringing, bringing game back out and taking in groceries and hunters. And, but anyway, getting back, he, he wanted to do this. He wanted to work for me. And I said, well, I need an editor. I'm too busy lecturing stuff. And, and I said, do you want to? editor be editor and he says yeah but i got i got uh, finished doing some haying for my dad and i'll be how about if i start in three weeks and i said okay yeah i just come in in three weeks and and birdie will show you and birdie my, that's my wife she was doing all the layout work on a mac and and unknown to me he went home and he spent three weeks in his basement practicing typing <laughs> and then he come and he came and he and he worked for me for 10 years and he he you know we've had some really good uh, editors, but as far as I'm concerned, he was the best editor I've ever had. And so, anyway, I got done with this book, and it needed to be uh, kind of. Uh, so I had. Do you know uh, Burke? I don't know. No, uh, he 
I had him uh, edit it, Dale mm-hmm. Burke. Okay. Uh, he he edited the book for me, and I come back, and here was a book, and it needed to be put into into a form on a computer, you know, uh, edit or formatted. And so my son came home from, he was going to Purdue, a guy, and, I, and he was pretty handy. And I said, well, can you do this book here? You're going to be home for 10, 12 days. Okay, so he sat down there, and he actually laid out that book for me. And I got it all done, and we looked at it and printed all, all the pages off and looked at it. And, and Rod says, you know, this book is going to be a classic. And I started laughing. <laughs> he said, what? He says, no. I said, oh, it's not going to be a classic. I said, I'll be lucky to sell one or two of these books. But, I mean, this is, it's, you know, one book, okay? I always wanted to do a book. And, and it kind of... He kind of got a little, he got kind of insulted. And I hadn't seen Rod in 16 years, and just a couple weeks ago, he stopped by. And I told him, I said, Rod, I got to tell you, I'm sorry. That book is a, seems to be a classic. I've sold over 36,000 of them. He said, Oh, I know. I knew I was going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that book is a classic. My, that is one of my favorite reads. I think that planted the seed, and now. I'm a high country mule deer hunter that travels all over the West in this new day and age. I hunt them with my bow, but that book was the one that lit the fire under me. And that book that the reason you sold so many copies is it continues to hold up. Like I I remember I paid, I had to buy that book and there was no more copies left of it. I had to pay $200 for that book when I bought it. I had to buy it off eBay or something, but I bought that book. I fell in love with it. I've read that one, your elk hunting book. um, And then you have another mule deer book out too, right? Yeah, I I did want to, took in Quaker country and the desert kind of mm-hmm. desert western desert not the desert like down in Arizona mm-hmm. kind of country and and I did that book and I, I'm pretty proud of that I I did some I updated the backpacking in it because you gotta realize back then when I did this first book it was it was none I was using my dad's old backpack when I was in mm-hmm. high school backpacking but you gotta realize too there was so different there I was thinking of this the other day I was back in there. I was in, in the Jackson Hole country and, and down there and the Grays River, which was uh, in, in the Wyoming Range and the Snake River Range and the Tetons and up up in uh, the Bridger uh, Teton Wilderness, all that country I would go into. But the only place you had outfitters is where there was a lot of elk and there'd be outfitters for elk and they really didn't care about deer. But some of the places I hunted, like in the Tetons and some and some places in um, in the wild, uh, not the Wyoming Range too much, but the Snake River Range. There was there was places I went into that hadn't, believe it or not, had not seen a hunter, hadn't seen anybody hunt because there was no elk in there and nobody really cared about mm-hmm. mule deer. I was, I, I mean, I went in some of these basins in the Tetons. I remember one basin, I sit there with my spotting scope. I was a senior in high school. I had horses too, but that country was so rough, you could just backpack it better than having to take horses and nursing them. You know how Well, and you're shooting do. deer, so getting them out on your pack is yeah. not like trying to get an elk out. I sit there, and I counted 28 mule deer in one basin, and there were some forked horns too, but most of them were all four-point bucks. Mm. In one basin, I, and I'd find how to go into a basin, and it's something when you go into a country that nobody's ever been into. Now I'll back up and say I saw 
old sheep herder trails because they used to run sheep in there. And then, the, then about in the 50s, uh, some of this country, the Forest Service started uh, getting rid of the permits, you know. So, uh, I mean, I'm not going to tell you that I was the first one ever in there, but I'll tell you what, I, I was probably the first one in there to hunt in 40 years or so. You know, that is some of that wild. I can't uh, imagine some of those heavy older bucks that you'd turn up in there. Well, and mm-hmm. and um, get, like you say, there. When I started, there wasn't in very much information out there. Your book was one of the only resources out there that I could look at that planted the seed to hunt that high country. How to coyote mule deer. I still refer to that term that you used all Coyoting the time. Out. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. And uh, but I can't imagine what you saw hunting that country back in the day as far as just heavy older big deer you had to have so much fun chasing those things around in the high country and and really like the only guy doing it at the time well you know there was i'd run into very seldom once in a while occasionally i'll run into a guy occasionally that was after i came back from vietnam in the 70s i'd run into but back when i was in high school i i never Never run into it. One one time, you're talking about big deer. One time, my brother had Moose Creek. There's in the Tetons. It was his hunting area, and I was guiding with him one, uh, him and I, and so we had hunters, one hunter apiece. <clears throat> and I took this guy up, and I went into this basin, and of course, one of those basins that nobody's ever been in, you know, that no hunter pressure or nothing. I, I was sitting and I was looking down, and down below me was a trail, and here come along the trail was two mule deer bucks and they were only like oh 75 yards from me didn't even know i was there and they're walking along and the first one came out a great big non-typical he had a, a dropper and then off every back point it, it was like three points Ooh, and then crowds. he had several inline points and this dro- dropper came down and had a ball on it oh geez just this big i went and right behind him come this one, one high 180 mule deer, slick four-point. I says, you shoot that buck. And the hunter looked at me and goes, I don't want that buck. He's so ugly looking. I want to shoot that nice, pretty one there. <laughs> so Mike Eastman goes, oh, perfect. All right. Shoot that one right there then. And in my mind, I'm going, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to find that buck, and I'm going to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and so he shot that one, and the other buck ran off. And so I packed it out and everything. And so when I got a couple of days off, I went back up. And I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to kill this big deer. Never found him. Never saw him again, ever, ever again. Hmm. Never, that, heard, that, never heard anybody just shooting him. No, I would have heard if somebody yeah. had mm-hmm. shot him. He just disappeared. I had another buck like that, and they had a Darby Creek the same way. Same thing. The guy says, I don't want to shoot that deer. He's ugly, and, he, you know, big non-typical on a bench. So we went somewhere else and shot a buck, and, and I went back, uh, I don't know, numerous times with hunters, never saw that buck again. They just kind of like, in that country, this some people say, well, I, usually, they, you know, they stay in an area and go back year after year, but the area is so big and vast, and, and they can just, you know, sometimes you can't find them, sometimes you can. Oh, man, isn't that mm-hmm. the game? Well, I hunt a lot of that country that you're talking about and absolutely love it, and there's still good genetics and good bucks in there. You know, they're just slick and sly, and 
Um, just like you're talking about, they just disappear. I'll scout one in the summer and then can't turn them up again come bow season. Or, you know, it's, um, and I had a great season in there this year chasing some really good bucks around. But yeah, those things are good at living in that habitat, aren't they? It's part of the reason why they're so fun to hunt and why you specialized them for so many years because they are so difficult to harvest, a mature muley buck. Well, it, where I lived, they stayed in that high country. Like you go to the Grays River and those bucks are up there in those big basins and the elk are down below, you know. And and so, at, and I'll tell you right now, when I was a kid, the guys weren't hunting those bucks up there. They, they, they were hunting elk. And one day I had a friend of mine tell me, you know, you ought to go up there to Cliff Creek and go up there and there's deer all over everywhere up there. I go, really? Oh. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was in high school and had a Jeep. <laughs> what are you guys laughing at? There's deer everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> no one says that well, Hey, back then where I, when I lived in the 50s and 60s, there were deer everywhere. I'm telling you guys. <laughs> and somebody shared that knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Multiple people. You may have been passed out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he, so I, I go up Cliff Creek, and they'd built, uh, they'd been logging up there, and they built a road and went clear up, and went right underneath there's a big old, uh, kind of like a big butte up there with cliffs on it. That's why I call it Cliff Creek, and up on top was scattered timber, and it's way up there. And so I made my way, young kid in high school, went up there, went up there, day hunting, went up there, went up, and went clear up there, and there was, you know, and I go, ah, there can't be any deer up here. And I went up there, and I sit down right in the, uh, right into, it was kind of hot. It was in the early fall. See, our season started the 10th of September. So it was kind of hot. And and uh, so I went and sit in a patch of timber right there where it was cool, and then I fell asleep. And, and it started getting cold, and I woke up, and the sun was going down. <laughs> and I, I looked around me, and here was all these deer. I mean, there was... Everywhere I looked was bucks sitting there feeding, coming out everywhere. <laughs> I go, shoot, they really do live up here. <laughs> so that was the beginning of me going, you know, I'm going to have to find out where these deer. And behind our house, we had Nolan Creek, and I used to go there. My dad, we used to have horses, and I can hunt that with horses, but Nolan Peak, there was always a big buck or two that lived around that peak, you know, and we used to, my, me and my uh middle brother we used to hunt a lot up there can you imagine getting on a horse at your house and a lot of guys can do it now but back then there there was no hunting camps there nobody hunting that country and go up plumber canyon go up on top and get up in the head of cash creek and nolan creek and it was like these two kids had this whole thing for elk and deer it was like you know it's unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> We'd camp up there, and now it's know. all covered in billion-dollar houses. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all. It's all changed when, when I was there, the town didn't have very many people, and everybody knew everybody, and they're all starving to death. Like I tell Jeez. people, you know, everybody talk about oh Jackson Hole, oh gee, that's rich peace, that's rich. Well, when I lived there, Jackson Hole was the was the poorest county in the state of Wyoming. It was so poor that the federal government loaned these two guys money, a, go a government grant to build a ski area so that they can employ some of the residents of the county in the wintertime. That's how poor this county was. 
There was nothing to do there. In the, win- in the summertime, you had some building going on, a little bit of building, uh, all the cattle ranches, you were a cowboy. In the fall, uh, if you were a cowboy, they didn't need you. They only need a couple guys to feed. So next thing you know, you went from there, you went to guiding hunters. And then from there, you clicked unemployment all winter and and got on, got your, your, your uh, s- uh, snow plane and went out on Jackson Lake and fished for Big Mac and all winter. And that's that's how everybody lived back then. And mm-hmm. you got your winter meat. Nobody killed them. It was a seasonal animal. life before it was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You you didn't kill a, an antlered animal. The only antlered, only, oh, that's another story. Let me hear a funny story about, about my first elk. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was 14, 14 years old. And my dad had this place that you go up sheep creek, it's called, and then, we can, and then you can look down over into, into what's called flat creek. And they had these big meadows going down. And there was, I guess, elk in there. I didn't know that. This was my first time in there. After that, me and my buddies hunted the heck out of that in high school. But anyway, my dad and I, we get up there and drive up there. And then we walk down and we get into these string meadows. And we sit down. And dad sits me down. And I'm 14 years old. And I've taken deer, but never elk, you know. And I have this big vision of elk you know you know i'm gonna kill a big one and we're sitting there and nothing's happening the sun's starting to go down so my dad takes out he's he shoot at that time he's, i think he did all his life well after he got back from world war ii he was shooting a seven millimeter magnum so he had a shell case he grabbed that darn shell case i think we did a thing on this i told this story to you and it, he blew in it and it made a whistle sound and all of a sudden, right down below us, about 200 yards, you hear this. <laughs> and just about then, the outcome drifts with a bunch of cows and stuff. And then this bull is just going nuts. And I'm going, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and Dad says, come on, kid. We're going down here. And so we ease our way down there. And we get down there just above him. And he's in the timber. And, <laughs> and then the cow's there. And out comes this little spike. And, his, and the bull, I can see the antlers in shining in the timber and i'm going he's gonna come out i'm gonna hang him <laughs> and my dad says shoot that spike huh shoot that spike. no dad dad there's a, there's a big six point in it. he's gonna come we need to meet shoot that spike i'm gonna tell you again <laughs> crack pop down goes the spike they all run off my first elk, a spike. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I imagine there's people out there, their first elk, they were glad to kill a spike, but not when you got a six-point bull just about ready to come out. Yeah, yeah. So then him and I had to pack that thing up and out into the truck and quarter at a time, and he looks at me and says, well, I got, we got our meat. He says, I'm taking the horses. I'm going to head of Flat Creek looking for a big bull next week. Uh, wait a minute you just used uh, my tag i wasted my tag on a bunch of elk meat oh that we'll use that that's really good eating <laughs> shoot yeah 14 year old drew, drew the short straw for sure oh. well um what a treat for me the eastman's just has such rich history mike you are so fun to talk to so i just want to turn it over to ike for for a minute ike you know all his stories uh, what questions Actually, would you like to ask him, or what story would you want to hear from Mike for the close on? Oh my gosh, that's that's 
That's oh wow, that's uh, crazy. Uh, <laughs> I put you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's so many of them. Um, probably one of my favorite. Let's talk about mule deer because we kind of did, but one of my favorite mule deer stories of dads is the one. Um, have you guys heard the one where he, dad almost froze to death? Have you heard no. that story? Uh-uh. You want to tell him that one, dad? Or our uncle Rod had to come bail you oh, out. Oh, me? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's that buck right there. Oh, is it? He's still here. Oh, wow. What a buck. Yeah, well, you want to hear the whole story? Or I do, just yeah. Con- no, the I whole love story. to hear the yeah. whole story, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I, this was in the 70s. And of course, I was I came back from the war and... And so it was a police action. <laughs> I'm sorry. I won't get him on that. I'm just teasing. Him. Yeah, I was. That's what they said. So why did they pay me combat? <laughs> That's a good point. If it was a police action, ask him that. Well, anyway, getting back to this. So they'd shorten the seasons up to about the 20th of November. You used to run them clear into November, but the deer population really crashed. And so they... And I was hunting for a big deer, and I know I know how it works with deer. Uh, you know, snow is okay to bring them down, kind of, but I've seen bucks up to their uh, shoulders in snow, and it doesn't really bother them. They'll go under trees to eat and stuff, but what re- really gets them, what really gets a deer, and elk too, but deer is when it gets cold. And to me, the mark is when it gets 15 below or colder, they got to come down where the groceries are, and then they start feeding several times a day to keep their f- furnace going. And so it, that's what happened. It snowed, and it was about the 12th of, no, it was about the 15th of November season. Let me back up. It could have been the 15th or the 20th. How do I know? That was back in the 73 or something. <laughs> anyway, it was that whole week, I was kind of, we were laid off from working. I was doing construction work. And, um, you know, and my hunting camp was shut up because it, it quit the end of October. So I was hunting for myself. Me and my buddy uh, named Brian Wilson, and we used my truck, had a brand new truck. So we were using my truck and we we're hunting. And, and, and I, he was sleeping. It was about eight in the morning. He probably had a hangover knowing him. He was sleeping <laughs> and we're driving down the Snake River Canyon. And I stopped and I glassed and way ahead of the canyon, I looked and his buck got up and he's great big non-typical good non-typical and i woke him up i said a good non-typical let's go let's go after him and then back then you didn't have to wear fresh and orange so both of us had white parkas on <laughs> and that's another thing now you put a white parka on and stuff elk can see through it for some reason but i've had mule deer look right straight through me don't even see me as i'm standing there you know <laughs> so I said, you know, we're up this canyon. I said, you take that side. I'll take this side. That's not a suggestion on how to hunt mule deer, however. <laughs> <laughs> and it was about 25 below. And so off we went. And we went up there. And, uh, and for some reason, the buck uh, saw me or I don't know what. The wind probably he winded me. And he went up and got right up. And my buddy was right there and he shot him. So he shot this buck. It scored two like 222 wow heavy heavy buck probably almost 28 inches of mass he was just Ugh. just a big old black horned so i'm going i'm going god i my buck and stuff so <laughs> we went around to bars and showed everybody that day and made a big deal about it and so 
I he of course he I got my buck. See you later, Mike. I'm not going to help you. That's kind of friendly one. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> and he was done, and so I by myself. And so the last day of the season, the last day of the season, I said, okay. I pulled off the road, and it was right by a place called Astoria, and there's a great big, uh, huge mountain, and those deer had winter on it, and so I know all the deer had come out, and it was uh, it was tw- uh, 32 below, <sighs> and I got out. And I look like a Pillsbury Dobo, okay? I, I'm all wooled up, I call it, wooled up. And so up the mountain, I started going. Doot, 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 doot. And I'm climbing, I'm climbing. And every time I stop and look, I'd stop and look, and, and, and I couldn't stop for more than, oh, I don't know, five minutes, I'd get cold. So I had to keep moving. And the wind was blowing about 15 miles an hour. So I don't know what will, you know, chill factor. You know, I'm a young guy, you know, it's up and up and up. And I get clear to the top and I come around and there's all these, you know, kind of shoots with Quakers and sagebrush. And I come around this one and I put my binoculars up and I see these does and up. And I see this buck, and he's in the Quakers, and he just got through breeding the doe. I knew that because his tongue was hanging out, <laughs> and it was, you know, it was during the rut. And all I could see is one side with all those cheaters on him. They got four cheaters. Is it four? How many? I can't. Five, uh, six. I don't know. On one side, all those. One side, I see all. I can't see the other. I go, well, that's a pretty, that's a really good buck. I'll, the last day of the season, I'm going to whack him. And so I shot him. And I still didn't know what he looked like. And I walked up to him and I parted the Quakers and looked out. There he was laying there dead. And here he was. He had all those cheaters on him and all that stuff. And I go, holy smokes. And so I have to drag him down and across about a two and a half mile sagebrush flat to the road. Well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to gut him out or dress him out. I mean, I don't want to freeze him. So I started down with him whole, and we'd go, you know, and it's pretty steep down, down, down. And then I get to the bottom, and I'm played out by then, and it's getting cold, and the sun, it's dark dark now. (laughs) And I'm trying to pull him across that sagebrush flat, and and there was – you know, there were still sagebrush sticking up. You can imagine the tops, and he's kidding catch on it. I go, oh, this isn't working. I thought to myself, well, I'm going to have to leave him here and come back for him or something. This is, uh, I, and just about then, I got, you know what snowshoe sickness is? <laughs> okay, here's what happened. When you get, you exert so much, uh, your body, your muscles get so tired, it, it, they, it, it's a chemical that goes into your muscles uh, from f- when you get s- exerted so, so much exertion. Exertion, and they call it snowshoe sickness. Guys, guys used to snowshoeing, and they and all your all your leg muscles completely get Charlie horses, just twist and big knots and stuff, and you can't do anything. And I, oh my, I got that, and I started. I was on the ground flipping myself around. It, I couldn't. I tried to. I, I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. I was rolling around. I'm going. Oh boy, I'm in really trouble now. I can't even walk out. I'm. I'm sitting there, and it's getting colder and colder. And I think that night it got 38 below, and all of a sudden I hear this. There's a freaking snow machine. Comes up and it's my brother. He had been hunting too, and he had seen me shoot the buck. And then he went on up Pritchard Pass looking for deer, and he had his snow machine in there because he he was uh, 
coyote hunting too back then coyotes you can get them for over 100 bucks a piece back mm. in those days wow so he pulls up I said, I can't move. I can't do it. And he's mad. He sees this deer. And he spotted this deer, I guess, that morning and was going to go after it. And he come down to go after it. And he looks and here's his brother standing up there shooting at him. <laughs> <laughs> so he's really ticked at me. But he knows I'm in trouble. So he had a he had a Yamaha 440 back then when they were, they were badass, man. They were Ticer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they could jump on top of the snow and go not those old skidoos that plowed snow you know this thing would but anyway so he tied the deer with a rope behind got me on the snow machine and him and off we went and we're going along and the moon just come up and i'm look i look at this deer and this deer i look behind and he had the deer he's dragging it and he's just balls to the wall going like crazy and that deer spinning like this, just spinning, spinning. I go, this ain't bad. And all of a sudden, I hear this, like a twenty-two go off. And that one antler just goes flying in the air. Oh, no. Whoa. Wait, wait, wait. Stop. And he stops. And I go, <laughs> he goes back, picks up the antler, gives it to me. It broke right below the bird. You can see up there. See where it's see kind where of brown? Oh, on the uh, yeah, oh, I did. his right. Yeah, okay. I didn't right notice there. that. Yeah. And, I, and so then I said, tie his head to the the snow machine so he doesn't do that so he did and and he i think he saved my life i i could not i could not move i could not get up and walk i could all i could do and even it took um two hours before i could even hardly even move you know i was so so that's the story lactic acid is is that what it is yeah 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 yeah, I got it. So, you poison it. your muscles. Mm-hmm. Is what yeah, just working so hard in that cold, and you yeah. don't get any breaks when no. it's that cold. You can't stop moving, like you say. No. I stopped but, moving. I got cold. Yeah. Well, and he was probably dehydrated because I'm yeah. sure that was. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that too. I never back water. then. You never carried carried water. You just went and hunted all day. Think about it when it's cold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You didn't know about that stuff, you know. You just um, so that's so that's, that's your story. That's uh, my. Of course, growing up and staring at that deer my entire life, that's probably my favorite deer story. Wow. Man, what wow. a great one. I, uh, you know, I got rid of all, um, I don't, people come, I don't let too many people in my house, but when they come in, except they get for great, Halloween. Yeah, except Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of disappointing because I only, only have a few that really mean a lot to me. Like in my office, I've got a 186 net mule deer. That was another story that uh, we floated across the river, mm-hmm. uh, Snake River at 25 below, and the old man thought he hit it, but he really didn't, and gave me the gun, and I basically walked the buck down and shot it. So, I remember seeing the photos in your book, right? I think yeah. you got photos across yeah. in the river with it on the right. raft or yeah. something. There's a video, actually. Uh, yeah. There's, oh, there's a there? film of it. Oh, That's what I grew up watching. Oh, wow. not, so much, not of me, but of another guy, like Gordon deal. Took, but... Uh, this buck uh, outsmarted Gordon three times. He went across the river trying to shoot him. And so the third time he decided to go clear around the buck and come down on him. And the buck was rutting. And, but my dad knew he couldn't buck. The snow was waist deep. So he got his 17-year-old son to go and push me out front. And I broke the trail up and over. And he was right behind me. And then we got up there and come down. And that buck raised his head and looked at us. He knew he was S O L. He the look on his face was uh 
uh-oh. <laughs> Literally got caught with his pants down yeah. breeding a doe. Right. <laughs> My dad shot, Sorry. but dad shot right underneath and just grazed his brisket. Just like if you'd cut the hide, mm-hmm. that was it. But he thought he'd really hit him, and he gives me the gun. He said, yeah, kid, go down there and finish him off because the buck went down and disappeared down. Well, I, f- I walked him clear down to the, the river, mm. and he finally was laying there pooped his tongue was hanging out and i thought he was wounded and so shot him and you know in the shoulder and he died and i went over and i said well, where'd dad shoot him i flipped him over and he just crashed him. <laughs> wow. of course wow. uh, gordon says well that's my buck <laughs> but, but, but oh no, no, first blood man I, I <laughs> once again <laughs> back then a uh, boone crockett minimum was 185 and and that buck his mainframe here's another side that buck's mainframe was, I remember exactly, 30 inches mainframe. It has no cheaters or anything. And he scored 186 and some change. And then it sat in a bar since 1960, let's see, 60 foot, 60, maybe 65 or 66. It sat in a bar in Jackson that long. So I finagled and got the buck. Uh, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years ago. I don't know how many years ago. And it was so smoky, I went to bring it back here, and my wife made me put it in a garbage bag and tie it because so it stunk like <laughs> cigarette smoke. So I took, the, I took the antlers off, and then I took and washed the antlers because all the nicotine was falling off them and stuff. And then I had it remounted. But what I really wanted to say, that buck and that length of time, his outside spread shrunk two inches wow did it really yep hmm. he's wow. now 28 inches so gosh that sounds like a fish story to me huh? no way he shrunk 28 inches and eight, how much if it was that like huh? 45 50 Two inches 60, and... 70 years <laughs> <laughs> well, i'm just teasing oh. <laughs> that was that was i remember when you bring that home i was in high school so I don't want to date myself. It was a lot longer than 15 mm-hmm. years ago. 10 years ago or something? Yeah, yeah at yeah. least. <laughs> yeah. But that thing stunk our house up, and it would just turn the sink black. Yeah, All the nicotine on that was so it was gross. It a bar. Wow. i tell you where it was. If you ever go to Jackson, it's there, but they're going to tear it down. It was sitting there in the uh, – what's up? The Persky's bar there. Uh, uh, not the antler, but the uh, – oh, gosh. That's where all the locals hang out at that bar. <laughs> What Grandpa Gordon actually has a sheep in there. Yeah, I don't know. They're they're going to tear that thing down. Somebody bought that whole property. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, he's got his California bighorn the in elkhorn? there. Elkhorn. His California bighorn is in there, and also his uh, dull sheep that would go in the record book that he killed in the Northwest Territory that right. he walked down. Right. And killed on the same mountain guy killed yeah, his. Yeah, same mountain that guy killed his yep. fifty years later. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but what I forget what they call it. Virginia. The Virginian, thank you. Yeah, Virginia Bar. It, st- it stayed in there for many, many years, and I always thought it was my deer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's now remounted and sitting in my office over there with two pictures of guys floating the river in the ice. Oh, I've got to take a look before I take off. Yeah, I want to see him, but... <laughs> Yeah, uh, what amazing stories in history and being able to hunt mule deer um, back then and, and be, you know, some of the first guys doing it. That's just amazing. A buck you crossed the river on and then this buck on the snowmobile where he about died in the snow. That's just amazing, Mike. 
oh, I don't know, back then you didn't think anything of it. And a lot of times I never told stories. I, I'd come home and, and 30 years later I'd be telling one of the kids, my wife would look at me and go, well, I didn't know you did that. I just, you know, you never, I come from a family where my dad was pretty much, uh, he pretty much dominated all the conversation and stuff. So most of my stories I kept to myself until, oh, I don't know, in later life, you know. And then one will pop up in my head and, and I'll tell somebody and you get me get a get me a little livelier and I got all kinds of stories. Well, well I I thought about bringing you some wine this morning but it was a little <laughs> bit early but no you did a great job. Uh, it was so fun for me to listen to and for our audience. So I really appreciate your time, Mike. Well, if you don't have too many people that listen to this i know you track it don't let me know okay <laughs> i don't have a big ego but i do have one you know? they don't want to hear some del- old, old guy tell old stories this is silly they it gets more delicate me. the older he gets <laughs> yep. well thanks cruise. guys i really appreciate it thanks yep. Ike. thanks Brian. thanks all right guys that's a wrap wasn't that a fun conversation with mike um just to get him in his element like that and then get him warmed up and relaxed and telling stories, uh, I could listen to those stories all day long. Uh, such a great podcast with Mike, and thanks to Ike sitting in. He always adds to the podcast, and he just knows his dad really well, knows all those stories, and he's able to kind of pull it out of him and, and make him more comfortable. It's just awesome. And and then Dan Bacar, uh, can't say enough good things about that guy. Man, he harvested a great bull this year, and uh, really fun to see him and catch up. And you'll just, uh, I'll be hanging out with the Eastmans. There'll be, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten of us or whatever. We'll go out to dinner. We'll go out to lunch. And I, I really like to visit with everybody at the table. But I just seem to gravitate towards Dan. And pretty soon we're singled off the two of us and we're talking bow hunting. <laughs> like it just, uh, it happens every single time. So uh, I really love that guy. He's a great bow hunter and a, a great person. So fun hanging out with him and hearing his stories. We're going to get him back on the podcast. Uh, he's one of my favorite guests on the podcast. But really nice of him to sit in on this podcast, on this conversation. And um, yeah, it was tricky when you get four guys, when to jump in and, and, uh, uh, add to the conversation. He just does a super job of it. So thanks to Dan Picard again. Uh, uh, a big thanks to Mike Eastman for sitting down with me and sharing his stories. Uh, man, couldn't have gone any better. I really love that conversation. So uh, thanks to Mike and thanks to the Eastmans for bringing me aboard, uh, making me feel like I'm part of the team. Um, those guys have always taken good care of me and um, just that they trusted me to do the the video and the podcast and um, man, it's just, uh, it, it, it's humbling and I, I'm just really proud to be a part of such a great company and, uh, be able to put out the good content for you guys. So, um, just awesome. Want to thank those guys. I also want to thank, uh, Evolution Outdoors, Dale Perry, just a great broadhead design. I like their fix, which is their Jekyll. And then, uh, I also like their expandable, their hide. They come in 100s, 125s. The blades are sharp in front and back. Just a devastating head, and they've done good for me all year. So if you're in the market for some new broadheads, uh, make sure to check them out. Evolution Outdoors. Uh, make sure to check out that new Beyond the Grid. And then, um, like I said, that, uh, 
that that show Eastman's Hunting TV on the Outdoor Channel. Make sure to set your DVR. I got an episode coming up. I'm not sure when they're going to release it, but the edit's all done. Um, man, it's it's some of the best work I've ever done. I'm like finally capturing what I want to show on a hunt, and this was just epic action, epic hunting. You guys might have listened to the podcast, the elk hunting podcast uh, that I did recently. Um, Man, it's so fun to see it come to life on the screen, and the the shots are done so well. Josiah, that cameraman, did a really good job for me, and um, man, Lindsay just did an awesome job editing thing to, things together, getting my insight on the show, and really showing the action, you know, showing the, the weather and uh, uh, close calls, and um, man, it's just an awesome episode. I'm so proud of that one. That is so cool. Um, so I'm really excited to share it with you guys. So be on the lookout for that. And um, any last-minute Christmas gifts, make sure to check out our gift guide, although it is getting pretty close to Christmas. I think Christmas is like two days. Uh, I finished up all my shopping. I got some good stuff for the family, so super excited for them to open that. And then, um, yeah, hang out with the fam. And and um, it's been good lately. It's uh, it's fun to spend time with family and um, kind of get back to normal life. I've been going so hard for the season. Um, so just kind of back to the grind here, getting work done and kind of caught up and podcasts recorded, hanging out with the fam, just uh, enjoying life to the fullest, uh, really getting good training runs in and um, making sure I'm doing my weight training uh, day in, day out. I've got a really good routine going shooting my bow, uh, set up that new VXR, uh, that bow sure shooting good. So I would really like to take that one down to Arizona. So just trying to get it dialed in and build trust in that thing. It's tough with the daylight in my new house that I've designed that I think I'm going to build next year. Um, I got the draftsman working on it now, but I, I drew the whole thing out and it's, I built and sold enough of these things where I've afforded myself the opportunity where I'm going to put an indoor 20 yard range in there. Man, am I so stoked. I mean, it's dark so much in the morning and in the evening. And I do, you know, a lot of 10-yard practice in the garage and things to get my arrows in. And I make sure that I shoot in the morning before I leave or at lunch if I come home for lunch or in the evening. Like, I'm always trying to find time to shoot my bow. But the reality is in the wintertime, with limited amount of light, it's cold to go get your arrows. Usually wind's nuking. I'm just not getting in the work that I that I need to 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 improve and get better. And I used to shoot a league every week, and then I started coaching 4-H kids, and so that kind of went by the wayside. And I know those guys are shooting now. I need to get up and shoot the line with them, um, just because it's good pressure. But um, how awesome will it be to be have an indoor range in my house? I will shoot around morning and night. I know I can, um, it'll really help me improve, but for now, you know, that's a year down the road till I have an indoor range. So for now I just have to make do and shoot my arrows. And when the weather is good or when I do have daylight, uh, make sure I'm getting really good practice in, um, and keeping sharp for this Arizona hunt. Those coos deer are so switched on. They're a small target. And uh, so I got to be on my game for those things. So um, need to prepare for that or continue to prepare. But man, I'm just so fired up. It's just, uh, I, I love living this passionate life, uh, excited about life day in, day out and uh, sharing it with you guys. And so um, just want to get you like a New Year's, not a motivation podcast, but I mean, that's pretty much what it, what it is because I'm starting to light a fire under myself to work hard so I can reach my goals in 2020. And as I look back, you know, I'm getting ready to make a post at the end of the year. 
uh, 11 big game animals this year with my bow and arrow. Man, I'm so proud. Like, I feel, you know, sometimes I remember my failures more than my successes, but as I look back and I was able to do New Zealand, and then I counted it up, I hunted six different states. I hunted uh, 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 Arizona. I killed a coos deer there right at the first, uh, uh, the beginning of the year. And then, um, gosh, I arrowed a bear in Montana, a nice blonde phase, the blondest bear I've ever killed. Um, went to New Zealand, uh, harvested a tar there, which is just incredible. Fallow buck, free-range fallow buck. It was awesome. Just a palmated extras, and I, I don't know that I'll ever kill a deer that looks anything like that again. And then it would go to Hawaii and a mouflon sheep and come back to, you know, and I struck out early season mule deer, but then got a really nice late season Montana home state mule deer, hook cheater and extras, and then um, antelope and gosh, a, a couple elk, a really good elk season for me this year. So it's just been an incredible year and I just can't rest on my laurels and I'm ready to put more work than I put in last year to be better prepared and, uh, uh, just cut myself loose in these mountains. So it's awesome. I love living this passionate lifestyle and sharing it with you, sharing it with you guys. So, um, Okay, I always get rambling here. Make sure to check out that Beyond the Grid, uh, that awesome cat hunt. Uh, I think I already went over all this stuff, so I'm repeating myself. Oh, what a great podcast. Thanks to Mike. Thanks to Ike, the Eastman's family. I sure appreciate it. And uh, thanks to you guys for the support, man. The messages. Um, I just get a ton of really kind messages complimenting the podcast, and it just, it, it just, uh, it helps solidify like like what I'm doing on the podcast and the information I'm putting out. And um, you know, I you know, you do get c- constructive criticism, or I do get constructive criticism at times too, which is which is fine. I want to know the the direction of the podcast and what you guys are looking for. But you guys are overwhelming with your support. Um, social media for the podcast, man, it just means the world to me. You guys are, you know, would have helped create this this lifestyle that I love living, you know, where I'm able to put my emphasis on on hunting and, um, you know, it, it, it's just, uh, it's been a wild ride. So thank you guys. I sure appreciate it. And um, with that, I will check in with you guys next week.